Please turn your Bibles to Romans 8. I'll say a special shout out to our new members. This is your third worship service of the day, so it's almost Puritan status. Uh, we're continuing our series in Romans 8. We'll begin in verse uh, 18, and we will read through verse 25. This is God's word for us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, in your word you promise us that those who behold you, your face, your glory, shall be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And Lord, we can't see you because you are spirit, but through your word we can see you if you open our eyes to it. We ask that your spirit would come upon us now. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears that we might see and hear and even feel that you are with us. We thank you that you are God and we are your people. We pray for your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin by committing a pulpit foul. I'm going to quote the same author two weeks in a row. Uh, Last week I quoted C.S. Lewis that told a story from the great divorce. This time I'm going to the silver chair. Uh, Silver chair, it's the, uh, well, depending how you count, but I say it's the sixth book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Uh, If you don't know the basic plot of the silver chair, it's about these two children, uh, Eustace Uh, And Jill, they are sent by Aslan, who is the Lion King, kind of a Christ figure. They're sent to find a lost prince who is to be the crown king of Narnia. Uh, Eustace and Jill are followed by, or accompanied rather, by uh, a creature, this frog like humanoid thing called Puddle Glum. He's called a marsh whale. Uh, Their journey takes them beneath the ground into an underground world. Where there's no sun, there's no grass, it's pitch black other than a few torches. Uh, They do find the prince, but as soon as they do, uh, they are basically captured by uh, a witch figure, the Lady of the Green Kirtle. And seeing that she can't take them by force, she tries to deceive them. So she lights a fire, puts some incense in it, strums this harp, and tries to tell them that there is no world above. There is no Narnia, there is no Aslan, all these things are make-believe, and she almost has them. Now you got to remember, the Chronicles of Narnia is Christian allegory. So maybe the Lady of the Green Kirtle is like an atheist college professor, right, trying to get them to abandon their faith, and they, they almost believe it. 
But at the last moment, Padoglum gets up and he stamps out the fire and he gives this amazing speech. And I'm going to read it uh, in a bridge quote. And, and hang with me here. I think this is an interesting thing that our friend Padoglum says. Here's what he says. One word, ma'am, one word. All you've been saying, no Narnia, no Aslan, all you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I won't deny any of what you said. But there's one more thing to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Well, I can say is that, in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. (laughs) And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. Now, when you read it in the book, it is a fist-pumping moment. It's invigorating. You're like, yeah, puddle glum, tell him, you know. But as I read this passage and studied it, I imagine the Apostle Paul in the room with them. And as soon as Puddleglum kind of gives that speech, I imagine Paul saying, wait, 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 what are you doing? Don't you realize if you give up on the truth question, you've given up the whole ship and you're going to sink? Because the basic message that Puddleglum is saying is when life gets dark, life gets so hard that you can't see the sun, what you've got to hang on to is not truth, but sentimentalism. Romans 8, we're brought into this dark world, this world of uh, a creation that's cursed by sin. And Paul is uh, asking the question, what do we do with this world that we've been placed in? What do we do in a world that is dark? And if we can sum up, and this is a meaty passage, I know, if we could boil it down to a single statement, I think Paul is saying, because this world is a world of suffering, hang on to the truth. Obvious question, truth about what? We'll see Paul is going to speak of truth in three different areas. First is the truth of suffering. You've got to know what you're up against. Second, we're going to see the truth of suffering's purpose. Finally, we'll see the truth of the future. So let's look at the truth of suffering. And the main thing I want you to see in this first point is that the picture we get of suffering is all-inclusive. It's holistic. It's not slanted. And we're going to, at least in these first few verses, we're actually going to move backward because that will drive home the point a little bit better, I think. First thing I want to point out is that Paul acknowledges suffering for what it is. If you've ever walked someone through a really difficult time, when did you start to become concerned for them? You probably weren't necessarily concerned by just the fact that they were grieving, even if they were really, really going through extreme grief. I remember hearing a pastor say in a sermon that one time he went to visit a friend whose parent had just passed away. And when he got there, the friend had moved on from the tissues that was crying into a towel. The tissues weren't sufficient. That's extreme grief. I don't think that's concerning. That's just human. Maybe you start to get concerned, though, when the grief turns into cynicism. They start to say things like, does God really care at all? 
is pain all this life is about? Does it ever get any better? Maybe you hear them say that kind of thing and you get a little concerned. I mean, are there, is their faith maybe weakening a little bit? And if their faith is weakening, is it going to get snuffed out entirely? Well, Paul's description of suffering is not cynical, but it comes really close. Look at verse 20. Paul said something that's very counterintuitive. I want you to see this. The creation is subjected to futility. That's meaninglessness. Creation is subjected to vanity. Now, the Greek word right there is the same one in the Greek translation of the word vanity in Ecclesiastes. And a lot of scholars have seen a connection there and think it's relevant. And if you remember Ecclesiastes, the question the preacher is wrestling with is the question of vanity. The fact that life as a whole is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And if we're honest with ourselves, you just look at the raw data of life. And you don't bring God into the picture. That's exactly what life appears to be. Life is futility. Life is frustration. We have dreams of the good life, but they never quite materialize, right? Think of the best thing you could hope for. For me, it's just spending a week at the beach. If you're like me, you're a beach person, not a mountain person. You've got the beach on the calendar. Months out, you're excited. Maybe you're so excited you can't sleep a week before. You get in the car and you bicker with your family the whole way up. (laughs) And you get there and you forget about all the sand. And then the second day, one of the kids has the stomach flu. And by the fourth day, the whole family has the stomach flu. And then it rains the rest of the week. And you go home and you think, what What was the point of that? Dreaming of a smooth week at the beach is futile. And so goes it for the rest of life. But we don't just see that life is subjected to futility because there's more. Look at verse 21. Creation is in bondage to corruption. Bondage to decay. It's not just that our dreams don't work out, but things fall apart. The statistics are jarring. 48% of Americans will battle some form of heart disease. 38% of adults battle some form of substance abuse addiction in their lives. 46% of adults will face a mental health illness at some point in their lifetime. 50% of marriages end in divorce. And, of course, 100% of human lives end in death. Futility and suffering are not once-off experiences, but they pervade life as a whole. This is the perspective that Paul takes. This is the truth of suffering. Look back at verse 18, though. This is an important thing to remember. Paul's perspective on suffering is all-inclusive, and we, like him, need to face suffering head-on, see it for what it is. But that's not all. The key to seeing the truth of suffering is not denying suffering, but weighing it. Look at what he says, verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What's the key there? Key is not to deny suffering or to put some kind of a positive spin on it, but to compare it with the glory to come. What's this glory? Well, heaven, of course. It's the age to come. It's eternity with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. If you are a Christian... That is where you will be spending 99.999999% of your existence, right? And we need to remember that. Paul said the sufferings we go through are a light and momentary affliction. Paul was also nearly stoned to death, among many other 
brutal treatments that we could imagine. So how could, how could he say that? How is suffering a light and momentary affliction? Well, he sees it that way when he compares it with glory. Notice that Paul says he considers it to be so, that the glory surpasses the suffering. It's easy to understand that in kind of a casual manner. I think when I would read that passage before this, I would imagine him on his rocking chair, drinking coffee. I consider that the suffering of the... No, that's not the image. No, we're talking about a more disciplined type of thinking because the word, the Greek word for consider that's translated... Uh, consider is a good translation, but it's, there's more nuance to it that we don't quite pick up on right here. When Paul talks about considering, at least in this case, he's talking about intentional, focused, disciplined thought. Because if you aren't disciplined about uh, how you view suffering and how you compare it to the glory that's to come, what's probably going to happen is the suffering will overwhelm you. Suffering will crowd out any comfort you might receive from the promises that God has given you in Scripture. So we don't just consider glory lightly, but we consider it uh, intentionally. Thomas Watson heard this story in class a few weeks ago. He was a 17th century English Puritan scholar. At some point in the middle of his ministry, maybe in his 30s, he, was, uh, he fell ill. He was told maybe he had a month to live. He resolved that he would spend an hour a day meditating on heaven. Not in prayer necessarily, not reading his Bible, just thinking about heaven. Praise God he survived that illness, lived for another three decades. But he never gave up the practice of thinking about heaven for an hour a day. That is considering the glory that's to come. So what keeps you from thinking about heaven I think that what keeps many of us, what keeps me from thinking about heaven is we tend to think we have heaven on earth right now. That's easy to say if you live around here, right? 2018, USA Today, Tiga K, 12th best place to live in the country. I don't think Fort Mill and Indian Land and Rock Hill are that far off. So whatever metric you use, life is pretty much as good as it's going to get on planet earth. And that's a blessing, but if you're not careful, it becomes a bit of a curse too. Because in the back of your mind, you think, well, gee, this, this is supposed to be glory. That's to be revealed, right? And if things go wrong, what, what happened? We think this is supposed to be paradise, but it's not. This world is not our home. The truth of suffering is it pervades our lives, but the glory of heaven outshines it. One more aspect of the truth of suffering that we need to look at. Do you notice the source of suffering that Paul mentions. Look at verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility. Why? Was it because of random chance? No. Was it subjected to futility because of sin? Not in this case, at least. The creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Paul is saying that the reason this world, our lives are out of bounds, is because it is God's will for now. The amazing thing, though, is Paul doesn't say this with any ounce of bitterness at all. Did you catch that? And that leads us to our second point. So we saw the truth of suffering. Now we'll see the truth of suffering's purpose. Even when our sufferings are described with accuracy and honesty, they're done so with a purpose in mind. Did you catch that? 
Verse 22, the creation is not groaning because of arthritis. Creation is not growing because, groaning because of nausea or because of migraines. But because of what? Childbirth. I want to be careful here because I'm no expert on this. <laughs> but it's no accident that God chose to describe the relationship between our suffering and glory It's the same relationship as that between one of the most painful experiences in life and one of the greatest joys. The pains of labor bring about new life. And it's the same with our suffering, isn't it? And it's a mysterious relationship. I mean, why couldn't God just save us and bring heaven right here and now? Why didn't he do that? Many reasons, but what God is saying here is our suffering is a necessary part of our preparation for glory. That is why we suffer, if we are Christians, at least, if we are trusting in Christ. Because God does not subject you to suffering just to make you miserable, but so that one day you would know the joy of liberation. I find it intriguing that as Paul reflects on the relationship between suffering and glory, that he keeps coming back again to this theme of adoption. He does it three times. Verse 19, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons, plural, us of God. Verse 21, the creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One more time, verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. In this last example, verse 23 should, made us, should make us think, because why would Paul talk about adoption as something in the future tense? I mean, don't we have that now? Verse 15 and 16, we studied this two weeks ago. It says, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God, right? We have that right now. You are a child of God right now. But right here in this week's passage, adoption is something that's future tense. And why would that be? Am I a child of God or not? Well, of course we are, but Paul is drawing on attention that we see all over the place in the New Testament, and it's what a lot of people call the already, but the not yet. The already, but the not yet. And it's this idea that on the one hand, we as Christians have complete access to all the blessings of God right here, right now. God could not have more blessings for you than you enjoy now. He doesn't have anything extra that he's keeping away from you for another time. If your faith is in Jesus, you have Forgiveness of sins, assurance of God's love through the Holy Spirit, God's sovereign control over your life so that everything that happens to you, to the minutia, the last details being superintended for your maximum benefit. We have all of those things, but at the same time we don't experience, that's the key, experience any of those things to the full extent, right? We know this. We have forgiveness of sins, and yet we're often haunted by guilt and shame over sins we've committed in the past. And those are sins that have been forgiven of us, but we don't always feel the forgiveness. We have assurance of God's love, and sometimes we feel His presence in a a real and tangible way. I hope you do at least, but there are other times when God goes dark. And you're plagued by doubts, and you wonder if you're really saved, and does God really love you? We are God's children now, but in terms of our experience, maybe we don't match the family likeness, or at least we don't feel like we do. 
And we see the already and the not yet in this week's passage as well. In this case, we really do have the blessing of adoption. We see that even here it's referred to as the first fruits of the Spirit. And if you have heard that phrase before and it sounds familiar, it's a reference to the Old Testament. And offering the first fruit was essentially a custom of presenting the first fruits, the first crops that appeared at harvest time, bringing those before God as an offering of thanksgiving as an acknowledgement that where there are first fruits, there's going to be a much more fuller harvest to come. In the same way, the experience we have of the Spirit now as Christians is just the tip of the iceberg. As rich as the spiritual blessings are that we enjoy now as God's people, they're only the first of many that will come in heaven. So we have the blessing of adoption now, but only glory will we experience it to the full. So I have a friend who does campus ministry in Arkansas, and about a year ago, he and his wife already had three biological children, but they brought in a fourth as a foster child with the a hope of adopting him and Uh, Thankfully, they did that. It was finalized uh, about a month or two ago. And while this uh, boy, and we'll call him Mark, lived in uh, my friend's house, I don't have any doubt that my friend and his wife loved the child just as much as if he were their own biological child. But at the same time, there still was a gap, at least until the papers were finalized. And the example I kept seeing, because he sends out email updates, and he would send family photos. And where the foster child was, they had to black out his face for purposes of legality. You can't show his face. There was a bit of a gap. And of course, the analogy breaks down because we are God's children now again. That that has happened. But in terms of what we experience, there's a gap that won't be closed until glory. You can't just look at a Christian and know they're one. That's another way to think about it. Christians and non-Christians alike suffer. Wouldn't it be great if Christians immediately received glorified bodies even if we had to stay? But no. We get sick like the rest. We die like the rest. There is a gap between the Father's love and our experience of His blessings. We need to be prepared for them. And in God's wisdom, suffering is what prepares us for the future experience of the blessings that we'll receive for eternity. And the truth of suffering is to prepare us for adoption. Last point, three, the truth of the future. Everything we've said so far, if you tried to apply it, you could apply it in kind of a cynical way, right? You, maybe Paul would just write to you know, finish the section off and say, you know what, life's hard. <laughs> and, and my life is hard and I've been through a lot, you know, and, and heaven will be great, but in the meantime, just hang in there, you know. Keep on keeping on. But amazingly, that's not the tone that Paul takes. Look at verse 24 and 25. It's very hopeful. Literally, he talks about hope five times, I think. Hope is how we should live in the meantime. And as soon as we hear the word hope, we run the risk of a really big misunderstanding. When we talk about hope, oftentimes we talk about wishing, at least. That's kind of the connotation it takes. I wish I had a yacht. I wish I could fly. It's not going to happen, but one can hope. We wish for things and really sometimes we hope for the things we're probably not going to get. That's what a lot of people think hope is. But when the Bible talks about hope, it means the exact opposite. 
When the Bible talks about hope, it talks about the things we're going to receive in the future, which we can have the most, the most certainty. Things we can have the most certainty. Look at verse 24. Notice what hope is anchored in. Past tense. In this hope we were saved. Well, what is this hope? Verse 23. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Excuse me. The redemption of our bodies. As soon as we see that phrase, redemption of the body, we know we're talking about what? Resurrection. As soon as we hear of a resurrection in the Bible, what are, where are we in the realm of? Make-believe? Wishful thinking? No. We're in the realm of history. When we talk about resurrection, we're in the realm of truth. Because our hope in a future resurrection is not grounded in wishful thinking, but past resurrection in history. I'm talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, of course, after he was put to death for our sins. And the great thing about a religion, a faith, that's grounded in a past event is it's in the past. And if it's in the past, it can't be undone. The resurrection of Christ can't not have happened because it's history, it's truth. And on some day in history, it was around 30 to 33 AD, we don't know the exact date, but it, it's history. Jesus Christ awoke from death, walked out of that grave, ascended to heaven, because we're certain of that, we can be just as certain we're going to do the same thing one day. On occasion, it's kind of an embarrassing thing to admit. I get to proctor exam blocks at RTS. That's not the embarrassing part. You'll see. Uh, students come in, sign in, take an exam. I'm paid to just sit there. I have a few responsibilities. I make sure they sign in and make sure they're not cheating, which thankfully haven't come across that yet at seminary. Uh, one time I had some downtime. I, I just pulled out my phone. I don't know why, I was just bored. And I was on my calendar app. I don't know why, but I was scrolling and I realized something funny about my calendar app. It never stops. I tested it yesterday. I got to the year 6,045. <laughs> it took two minutes. So, And if you're wondering, 6,045, Christmas is on a Tuesday. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. I can't prove this. The Bible doesn't say it. There is a good chance I scrolled past the day that Jesus returns. I think there's a good chance of that. Yeah, I hope so, right? <laughs> there will come a day. It is as certain as if it was marked on your calendar that Jesus Christ is going to return to this world. And this age of broken bones and addiction and depression is going to be put to an end. Jesus was asked when are you coming back. And shockingly, he said, I don't know. But if he knew and he told us, we could put it on our calendar. And if he had said, I'm coming back this Tuesday, 11 o'clock, you don't have to schedule a doctor's appointment at noon because you won't need one anymore after that, right? <clears throat> the glory to come is so certain you can bank on it. That's what hope is about. And of course, what's the catch? Can't see it. We can't see the truth of the future because we can't see the future. So what do we do? Let's see what the text says. Wait for it with patience. Emphasis on patience. No one said it like my man Tom Petty, the waiting is the hardest part, right? (laughs) 
But here's the thing. I think you've probably found this in life. The people whom it's easiest to be patient with are the people that you trust the most. Is it easy to trust God with your pain, with your suffering? Sometimes, praise the Lord, the answer is actually yes. That we've, I hope you've experienced this. When the burdens really pile on, they build up, you actually find that your faith grows. I mean, that is a wonderful mercy. Sad case is that's not always true. Sometimes the burden pile on and trusting gets harder, which makes a lot of sense. And it's a good reason for us to bear one another's burdens, as Paul says elsewhere, to fulfill the law of Christ. Be patient with one another when they're having trouble being patient with God. And the thing to take away from this, I think, is that if you're in one of those seasons, when you're in the dark, the sun goes out, can't see the sun, can't see much light at all, consider glory. Because the best thing about glory is that it's not feel-good, make-believe. It's the truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you are patient with us, Lord. If we were unable to wait with patience and you uh, held that against us, we'd be in a world of trouble, but we thank you that you are patient with us. Our Father, we pray that you would apply uh, these truths that we have studied tonight, Father. We would see suffering for what it is. We would see what suffering does. It gets us ready for heaven. We also pray that uh, you would set our hope on the future, that we would not, when we think of heaven, we would not think of just a, a nice idea, a thing that we wish would happen, but the, a thing that will happen with certainty, that you will return King Jesus and bring heaven to earth with you and make this earth heaven indeed. So we pray that you would do that soon, we ask in your name. Amen. Amen.